Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. <clears throat> now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Serena, who, when they had came to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he had came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with that purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Taurus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Good morning. We invite you to take out your Bibles if you haven't already, but be turning to Acts chapter 11. We will be looking at that text of Scripture in just a few moments. We are going to look at a couple of verses before we dig in there at Acts chapter 11. But if you would like to go ahead and mark in your Bibles there at Acts chapter 11, we'll be studying that text in just a few moments. We're certainly glad to have good many with us this morning. We are thankful for the presence of our visitors. We are grateful that you have chosen to be with us this morning, and we hope that you can come back at any chance that you might have an opportunity. We are encouraged by your desire to worship God and to draw closer to Him. And we hope that this morning we can be all of us can be edified and strengthened in our faith as we draw closer to God and worship unto Him. It's not at all an uncommon experience to meet someone, maybe a neighbor, maybe someone you work with, maybe someone that is a relative, and they might say, I'm a Christian. And after you continue to have some discussions with them, you would probably find that you have a lot in common with them. That you believe that, that you share a similar belief in the inspiration of the Scriptures. They acknowledge and they believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came to the world and died for our sins. They believe in the God of the Bible. They may even go to church on Sundays. And then you might find out that if you continue to discuss where do you go to church, you might find out that they would also describe themselves not just as a Christian only, but as a Baptist or a Methodist or a Catholic. And so they suggest that they would go by a second name in conjunction with Christian. And another thing, as you might continue to discuss with this friend or, or family member or co-worker, is that as you start hearing them talk about things, they might say, well, I'm reading this Christian book or 
there's a I found at this Christian bookstore. I listen to Christian music. I think that's something else that contributes to some confusion because we have used the term Christian as an adjective, not just as a noun. And so we use the term Christian to describe schools. It's a Christian school, or it's a Christian work environment, or it's a we are a Christian nation, a Christian country, or Christian bookstore, or Christian music. Or we might sometimes describe use the term Christian as an in place of an adverb that that that's just the Christian thing to do whenever you go and you take care of your neighbor's dog or something like that for a few days. You might say that's just the Christian thing to do. I'm just trying to be neighborly. And what I'm just trying to suggest here is that all of this can generate some confusion about what it means to be a Christian and what exactly and who exactly is a Christian. Because there are many people who would claim to believe in Jesus and they would profess that belief. But is that really all that a Christian is? Or are they describing the kind and neighborly deeds that they do and the morals that they accept? I think many times whenever you run across someone that would say, I am a Christian, that's probably what they mean, that they have accepted many of the Morals of the Judeo-Christian societies that are throughout the world and they just don't even question them. They have readily accepted that moral basis. And there's something that I believe that is fascinating whenever you might have this kind of discussion and interaction with a friend or a neighbor is that when you think about what Jesus came to accomplish... In John, the 17th chapter, in John chapter 17, as he was praying, this was just before he was to be betrayed by Judas. In John chapter 17 and in verse 20, Jesus was not praying for himself. He was praying for those who would follow him, for disciples. And in verse 20, it says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also who believe in me through their word. And so Jesus, as He was praying for His apostles and His disciples, that would come even after the generation that was alive at that point. He is praying for you and me as well. And He goes on in verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus was praying that all believers would be unified. That they would be together. That there would be no distinction between this type of Christian or that type of Christian. But that we would simply and only be a Christian. A disciple of Jesus Christ. And I think that's shocking to many people in the world. And many people that would even claim to be a Christian. To think that there would be only one church that Christ died for. And that the Lord prayed that all believers would be one. A unified group of people believing and teaching the same things. Not divided 
into various denominations and groups. I think that would be very surprising to a lot of people. But that's exactly what Christ intended. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 10, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, saying, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Notice what the calling is and the standard that Paul is saying. That you all agree. Can you imagine if there were if everyone in the Lord's church or anyone that claimed to believe in Jesus and claimed to be a Christian, that they all agreed to the same thing? Can you imagine what the things would be like? Things would be drastically different. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you have the same mind speaking the same thing and coming to the same judgments and the same conclusions? Can you imagine what that might be like if all people who believed in Jesus and claimed to be a follower of His held to that kind of standard? How might things be different among denominations? Well, in fact, I think denominations would cease to exist. But how different would things be in the religious world? The distinctive plea of Jesus Christ is that Christians who are His disciples be one. Having the same mind and speaking the same thing, coming to the same conclusions and agreeing on things. And Christians ought to embrace Christ's plea that He prayed for in the garden on the night that He was betrayed. And Christians should want nothing more and they should want nothing less than what Christ wanted. And it is because of that that I personally have the conviction that the only name that I want to bear is the name of Christ. I don't want to bear the name of Martin Luther. I don't want to bear the name of any other title or group. Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian. I only want to be a Christian. So when I make the statement, I am a Christian, that's where I want it to stop. But so many times people need to clarify what type of Christian they are. And I think that's a problem. And I want us to think about what it really is to be a Christian. In the text this morning in Acts chapter 11, in Acts the 11th chapter, as we heard in our reading this morning, as the church in Antioch was beginning here, as we read the origin story of the church in Antioch of Syria, as after the persecution that began in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen's uh, death, and in Acts chapter 8 with the beginning of Paul's persecution or Saul of Tarsus, we have that the Christians were beginning to be scattered. Followers of Jesus had to leave Jerusalem. And many of them started making their way through the areas of Phoenicia, Cyprus, and they came to Antioch. 
a city of great influence. And there were men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and they were speaking a word to the Greeks, which was something that was unique that had not been done before. They weren't just preaching to the Jews only. And it says in verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. This is a church that is beginning, and it's growing, and it's thriving. It's a wonderful picture. And they decide that they need to have someone come, and so in Jerusalem as they hear about this, they need to send someone, a delegate if you will, to go to Antioch, to help encourage them, to help establish them. And so Barnabas is a good man to go. And I love the description in verse 23, then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, that he saw the evidence of God's grace in the lives of these people. And he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. He wanted to see these people be faithful to God. To not have a divided heart or a divided allegiance. He wanted them to remain faithful to the Lord. And it says in verse 25 that he left for Tarsus to, for, to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians. In Antioch. This is the first time in Scripture that you read of the name Christian. And I believe very firmly that this was not just a name that was given out of derision, as some people would suggest, that people began to attack and slander these people, and so they made fun of them and called them Christians. I don't think at all that's what was going on. Because in the text, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, it says that the disciples were first called Christians. And that word for called, it is used in the New Testament to imply that it's a divine message or a divine giving. That it is something that came from God. Luke used the term in Acts chapter 10 and in verse 22 with Cornelius's servants that were summoned to go get Peter to say, hey Peter, you need to come preach to this guy Cornelius. Notice in Acts chapter 10 and in verse 22, this is the same Greek word that is used here. Is as they said, Cornelius the centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. That this was a direction, a communication that Cornelius had been given by God to send for Peter. That's obviously a divine revealing. And that's how Luke uses that term and it seems just a, a page over in my Bible. Now, that would seem to imply that that's exactly what's going on here in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, that this is a name that God has named disciples. The name Christian is a special name that God has given unto us. 
We should never be ashamed to call ourselves a Christian. Because we, when we do, we are acknowledging our commitment to following Jesus Christ. We acknowledge our fellowship that we have with Him. When we call ourselves a Christian, we are expressing our commitment and our desire to follow Him. However, what might also be surprising is that the name Christian is only used three times in the Scriptures, in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, a few chapters later on in the book of Acts, nearing the end of the book, in Acts chapter 26 and verse 28, and then Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16. And you weigh that in contrast to the name saints or the descriptor saints, a holy one. That's used 61 times about Christians. But then disciple is a term that is used, and it's used right here in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That is a term that is used 269 times in the New Testament. And probably about 250 of those times or more are used to describe followers of Jesus. And I don't, I don't think there is any, anything lesser about the name Christian just because it's used less frequently. Numbers don't determine truth. But it does give perhaps a nuance to who we are and what Christians really are. And I want us to think about the term disciple, since that is used in, a, in an abundance throughout the New Testament, about what a disciple really is, because that's going to help us understand what a Christian really is. A disciple is one who engages in learning through instruction from another. It's a pupil or an apprentice. I think that certainly gives us a very good and basic definition of what a disciple is. It's someone who has committed themselves, their life, to learning from their master, to learning from their teacher. And what I think is important and significant here is that being a disciple requires using your mind. I think so many times when we think about religion, we think about church, we think about Jesus... We just want a warm, fuzzy feeling and we never want to use and exercise our mind. But we are, as a disciple, it requires us to use our mind as well as our heart. And so just when we think about ourselves being a disciple of Jesus Christ, it means that we are committing our life to His teachings. And we want to understand those teachings. Furthermore, a disciple is described as those who direct their minds to something. One engaged in learning. And that we have to be committed to that. If you would turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus teaches us about discipleship here in this passage of Scripture. We're going to look at a couple of verses in Matthew the 10th chapter. In Matthew, the 10th chapter, and in verse 24, 
Jesus, as he's talking and explaining some things about discipleship to disciples, to his disciples, to the twelve, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. And I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to us is that disciples are to be humble. That we have to acknowledge that we have something we need to learn. That we don't know it all. That we need to learn from someone who does know more than us. That we recognize that we have fallen short. That we don't know the way to God. That we don't always know what is pleasing to God. And we need to subject ourselves to the one who does. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Now we have to recognize Jesus' words as authoritative, that His teachings have some significance in our life. That they should mean something. And recall just a few chapters earlier in chapter 7, at the conclusion of the Sermon of the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 28, it says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. That Jesus' teaching was unique because He taught as one having authority that He claimed that He was sent by God. That He had all authority. And He was sharing that. And that's a principle that as disciples, we have to recognize that Jesus is the one that we submit ourselves to. That His teachings point us to God. And that He teaches us and shares with us what is pleasing and what is right. A quality of a disciple of Jesus Christ is that we are committed to being by the book. Now we want to follow what the Bible says. And we want to learn from the Scriptures. And we have a desire. We yearn for that. And when Christians quit having that desire, they're abandoning their call of being a disciple. That should alarm us. If we get to a point where we don't want to learn, where we don't want to grow in our knowledge and in our understanding. We should be alarmed for ourselves and for others. But that's only one aspect of being a disciple. Jesus continues on in Matthew chapter 10. In just the very next verse, in Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 25, he says, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? The disciples of Jesus said they must go beyond just learning intellectually. And as I mentioned, that's an important component in being a disciple is that we have to learn, we have to engage the mind but it also leads us to action. And if we just absorbed all the information that we could ever have, that, that's good, but that's falling short still. 
Because Jesus says a disciple becomes like his master. He becomes like his teacher. And that's the goal of each and every child of God. Is that we are disciples not just to learn and to know information, but that we are to be transformed, to become like Jesus. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, discusses this very principle. In Ephesians chapter 4, and in verse 11, as he's talking about the church and some of the roles and the offices and the people who have a commitment to teaching the Word and the Scriptures. In Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 11 it says, And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And all of those roles in some way or another have to do with instruction from the Word of God. And He says that those roles have been given to the church for, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as he's describing us in our maturing, that we are growing up. And you think of a, a son... A father and a son. And you, you may know someone who is really tall. And you might expect their son to be really tall, right? Maybe even taller than their dad. That would be sort of the natural expectation. And that's exactly what Paul is describing here as Christians, as disciples, as members of the Lord's body. That we are supposed to grow up in stature with Christ. That He is the bar. He is the standard. That we should become like Him. Discipleship is living like Jesus. It's adopting His teachings and implementing them into our lives. And our goal is to become more like Jesus each day. And that's one of the reasons that we have the Lord's church. That's why we have teaching that takes place. So that we can encourage each other, so that we can help each other become more like Jesus. But a second thing that we learn from our text in Acts chapter 11 about Christians, and this should be true of Christians. If we say that we are a Christian, then we should be an active participant in the local church. In Acts chapter 11 and in verse 26, notice what has taken place here. As Barnabas, he has gone to look for Saul or the Apostle Paul and he brings him back. And it says, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The example of these disciples and the Christians, that they became an active church. 
They became part of something larger than themselves. They did not try to practice their spirituality at home or by themselves. Being a Christian means that we become part of the Lord's church and we get plugged into the community of Christ. And we need to find the local church and we need to become a part of it. We need to become an active member in the local church. Because the local church has a purpose, it has a design that is supposed to help us grow stronger in our faith. But there is a dangerous mindset in the world today, broadly speaking, that we don't need the church. We only need Christ. And that's an absurdity in and of itself because Christ died for the church. So you can't talk about the church without talking about Christ and you can't talk about Christ without talking about the church. The church has a purpose. Jesus did not die without giving the church a purpose and a mission. And I would encourage you to go read the book of Ephesians. In fact, I can shorten that a little bit for you and probably just encourage you to read chapters 1-3 through of the book of Ephesians. And you'll see that the church was not by accident, it was not without a plan, that God in His eternal wisdom planned for the church to be established. It did not happen by accident. And while many people in the world might reflect this attitude, that we don't need the church, and I can be a Christian just by myself, or just me and my family. I don't need a local church to be a part of. I think sadly, that kind of attitude has crept in among even some of our brethren. I think they come to worship services and they assemble with the saints merely for themselves. And when, when you think of coming to worship services as something only for yourself, then you will eventually, maybe it will happen over time, but you will be satisfied with minimal effort. Where maybe you would say, all that's required of me is to be here once a week. And you certainly do not see that kind of attitude in this text in Acts chapter 11. You get the exact opposite, that this is a growing, thriving church that's hustling and bustling. And they're busting at the seams that... They are doing something that is unique that had not yet been done. They are preaching not to just the Jews only, but also to Gentiles. And a large number are believing in coming to Christ. Barnabas has seen the grace of God. And they are there for a year just studying and preaching and teaching. And that's what the local church is supposed to be.
They didn't offer minimal efforts. These Christians eagerly came together to study and worship God. And I can't help but think as the Apostle Paul would later write in the book of Romans that he must have been influenced by this kind of attitude that he saw there. Because the church at Antioch, they imbibed this, that the local church was to be a source of strength and encouragement in times of distress and even in times of discouragement. But the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 11, notice what Paul says as he is beginning this letter and as he's talking about how he wants to go to Rome. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 11, he says, For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. What I love about Paul's words here and his mindset is that he saw value in being with brethren, with Christians. He wanted that. And these are people that he has never met face to face. Let that sink in too. Uh, he wanted to be there. And he wanted to help them. He wanted to help them be strengthened and established. He wanted to help them. He didn't want to, to he wasn't self-seeking. He wanted to go give of himself. But then notice verse 12. That I may be encouraged together with you while among you. Think about that. I know this has no chance of happening, but if the Apostle Paul were to come in here right now, I'd be sitting down and I'd say preach to midnight. I would just want that opportunity to hear him preach. But do you get that sense that Paul might decline that? He might decline that invitation or that offer. Because notice what he says, I want to come and be encouraged together with you. I tell you, I would have a lot to learn from someone as knowledgeable as the Apostle Paul. We all would. But it's not just about knowledge, is it? It's about heart. It's about life. It's about what encouragement can we give even to Him? And Paul saw value in that. He didn't have this attitude, well, I know everything, so you're going to just listen to me. That's not how he approached this, was it? He said, I have a reason to come to you because you can help me. And he says, together we can do that. Each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And we can mutually help 
one another. That captures the essence of why we worship together twice on Sundays and have Bible classes on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights. That's the essence of it right there. And if we want to help each other grow stronger in their faith, then we will be at those assemblies. If we want to be strengthened in our faith by fellow Christians, then we will be at those assemblies. When this is our attitude, then we won't even think about arguing that we only have to be here for a minimal set number of times in a week. And if that were our attitude, if we had the attitude of the Apostle Paul, then preachers and elders would never have to talk about the importance of church attendance for our spiritual well-being. Conversation would be over. Wouldn't it? Because we see value in it. And if there is something that should be true about us when we say, I am a Christian... And we are acknowledging that we attend and we are involved and we are an active participant in the local church. That we assemble with other Christians and we take joy in that. We take pleasure in that. It should be something that's true about us when we say we are a Christian. And then one final point for us to think about this morning. That a Christian is someone that you become. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, in Acts chapter 26 and in verse 28, Paul is standing trial. He is before Felix and... Festus, now he's before Agrippa. And it says in verse 28, Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. We don't know the tone that Agrippa had. Something kind of makes me think that he might have been mocking Paul. But maybe you're a little bit more optimistic than I am and you think, Hey, Agrippa was sincere at least. Whether he actually acted on that or not, we never know. But maybe you're more the optimist than I am. But Agrippa, in his words here, while we don't know the sincerity behind it, what it does contain a nugget of truth. And that is... You are not born a Christian. You become a Christian. That you become a Christian. Religion is not something that is inherited. Religion and truth is something that is taught. And you can pass it down to your children and your family. But each individual must choose to accept it and obey it or they reject it. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 and chapter 3 and verse 15, 
Paul acknowledges that Timothy was taught by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice and how they shared that same faith. They had a common faith because they all accepted it. Not just because they were related by blood, but because they had all accepted it and tried to obey it. You become a Christian. It's not something that you are born as. And the sad truth is that some people will not become a Christian. I assume Agrippa never did because in his statement he says, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. I assume that never took place. And Paul, he understood another important truth that was found in Agrippa's words. To become a Christian, we have to persuade people, don't we? We have to show them why they ought to become a Christian. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 29, notice what Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul said, I want you to become a Christian. So the question that we have to ask is how do you become a Christian? And the book of Acts shows us this. It gives us sort of a crash course in how do you become a Christian? And it begins with hearing the gospel, hearing the message about Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 18 and in verse 4, it says, and he was reasoning, talking about Paul, reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. He was in the synagogue, he used the Scriptures, and he was trying to persuade them. This wasn't some kind of sales pitch that he just had carved out. He tried to persuade them with the Scriptures. That's how we have to persuade people to become a Christian. We have to show them the Scriptures. We have to show them the Word of God so that they can hear it and then that they can choose to believe it. In chapter 17, in chapter 17 of Acts, it says that Paul was explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. People have to choose to believe that message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose from the dead. People have to repent and turn to God. People must confess their faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, people must be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Notice in Acts chapter 18 and in verse 8 with the Corinthians and their conversion. And people at Corinth, it says in verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. When they heard the message and they believed it, what did they do? They were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. As Paul would account of his conversion in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, the words of Ananias, 
Now wind you delay, get up and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on His name. That is how you become a Christian. When you hear the Gospel and you profess to believe in Jesus Christ and you're willing to repent of your sins and make that confession and to be baptized in water to have your sins washed away, you become that disciple, that follower of Jesus, saved and in fellowship with God. And so the question that we want to leave you with this morning are you a Christian? And if you have not yet been baptized, if you've never responded in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we urge you to become a Christian. We would love to help you become a Christian today. But maybe it is that you're doubtful. Maybe you think you already are a Christian. If you would like to study further and love nothing more than to open up the Scriptures and the Word of God and study. And if you're here this morning and you think you might be persuaded, what else will it take? Agrippa said, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. What else will it take and how long do you need? James makes it abundantly clear that we're not promised tomorrow, that life is but a vapor. Don't waste the time that the Lord has blessed you with. This morning, we're about to sing the song of encouragement. Almost persuaded. Whatever way we might be able to help you this morning. If you need to respond in obedience to the gospel, we'd be delighted to help you become a child of God. Maybe it is that you have made that step to become a Christian. But you've not been living faithfully for the Lord. We want to encourage you to come back. God is gracious. God is merciful. And He wants you to come home to Him. In whatever way we can help you this morning, that you come now as we sing the song of encouragement.